You are listening to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. We are live on tour in fall 2023 with stops in Boston, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, and the United Kingdom. We know not everyone could join us at one of these live events, so we recorded our event in Boston so that all our wonderful listeners can experience the tour. Without further ado, here is our event on September 7th, 2023, at the offices of Ropes and Gray in Boston's Back Bay. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. Welcome to Ropes and Gray. My name is Emily Cugino. I work in the attorney depart- talent department here. I mean, I'm very excited to introduce Christy and Miriam from Harvard and Yale Law School to host an episode of their very popular, very exciting podcast about law school admissions. Um, as you guys already know, we have some snacks over there. They'll be available after the recording as well. And without further ado, I'll hand it over to them. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you so much um, to Emily uh, and to everyone at Ropes and Gray, to Troy and to wait, I'm Amy? No, Amy, Amy yes. yes, I knew I was gonna, I'm terrible with names. It's a horrible, fatal flaw um, for being such generous hosts. And thank you to all of you for being here. We are so excited to be in Boston for the very first uh, live podcast episode we've done. We're recording this for the possibility of maybe turning it into a podcast episode. So if you are not comfortable being recorded, do not get on a mic um, tonight. Um, So I'm sure all of you know that Christy and I hosted um, our Navigating Law School Admissions podcast together for three seasons. And our goal with the podcast was to uh, democratize information about the law school admissions process. And we wanted to provide all of you with um, accurate and straightforward information direct from the source. Although according to someone on Reddit, we're basically like getting nutrition advice from a pesticide company. So this is law school admissions advice from big pesticide um, slash Harvard and Yale Law School. Um, So this year we're taking our show on the road, um, but it is the same goal to help all of you navigate the law school admissions process. So I'll let Christy start by very briefly introducing herself. All right. Hi, everybody. It is such a thrill to see you here for our very first live podcast episode. My name is Christy Jobson. I'm the Dean of Admissions at Harvard Law School. Um, And my path to law school took a few twists and turns, including teaching in New York City for a number of years before I started 1L year. Um, And also after I graduated, spending a few years here at Ropes and Gray as a litigator. So I'm having a lot of that sense memory of being in the same space where I had a bunch of different trainings, but now I'm in this just totally different life space. Very really, (laughs) It happens. And um, in 2018, I moved back to HLS to serve as admissions dean, and I've been there ever since. This is my sixth year. My very favorite part of the job is getting to meet amazing people like you at events like this, and then eventually seeing you matriculate in our 1L class, getting to know you over the three years of law school, and then seeing your journey beyond. Okay, so it's my turn for an introduction. Unlike Christy, I had a very boring path to law school. I went straight through from college, um, and then after I graduated, I had pretty much every job you could have in being a lawyer. I was at a big firm. I was at a medium-sized firm. I was at a civil rights nonprofit. I taught law, uh, legal research and writing at NYU. I was a career counselor at NYU. And then I had this job. So if you have questions about career paths in law, I am your, 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 your gal. I can answer questions about all of those things. And, uh, 
I never dreamed in a million years I would have my current job. Christy and I were baby admissions deans together. That's why we became friends. Uh, We started right around the same time. So I'm also in year six. And yeah, it's really nice to finally feel like I know what I'm doing, although there's a lot been a lot of change in our time with COVID and all sorts of things. And obviously this is a year of, of change as well. So uh, the job is always interesting and, um, and tons of fun. So I'm gonna tell you very briefly um, what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna start with a game because if you listen to our podcast, you know that we have to start with a game. We're gonna ask for three volunteers. So start to think about whether you're gonna be one of them. Uh, and then we're gonna walk you through the following topics. What are we looking for? Transcripts testing, letters of rec, essays, resumes, and interviews. And then we're going to follow up with some, finish up with some questions. Uh, We had a bunch of great pre-submitted questions. We'll go through some of those. Um, We may or may not have time for some live questions, but we will play that by ear. And that is about it. So we're going to turn it over to game time. One uh, quick logistical reminder, you should have gotten an email a a little earlier this evening saying here, click here to say that you have arrived. And we would greatly appreciate it if you go ahead and take a moment to click where it says click here on that email. That'd be awesome. Then we can stay in touch with you. That's right. Now Now we we can harass you with email. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Volunteer time, raise your hand. Christy is gonna be our MC for this portion of the evening. Ooh, I love it. Maybe we need three volunteers, so maybe I'll take one from each portion of the room. We have an eager beaver here. Come on up. Come on down. Right here and right here. You don't even know what game this is gonna be. I love the enthusiasm for the (laughs) unknown game. Okay, so now- Wait, one quick reminder. So if you get on the microphone, you're gonna be recorded. And potentially on the podcast. Everyone in? You're still in? All right, line up. Let's do some intros really quick. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you go for it. All right. Will you, volunteer number one, will you share your name with everybody? My name is Folu. Okay, one fun fact, Folu. Name and fun fact. I was born in London. That's my fun fact. Oh, all right. We're going to London later this year. We are going to London. We're doing some podcast events in London. Okay, volunteer number two, name and fun fact. Uh, my name is Emma. Um, fun fact is I'm from Kansas originally. All right. So what All do you right. think is rare, Kansas or London? I don't even know. It could be like a tough call. Maybe Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's saying Kansas. All right. And then okay. last but not least, volunteer number three. Okay. My name is Derek. My fun fact is I play the accordion. Woo. Do you play it well? Uh, uh, maybe. All right. Okay. I'm into this. All right. So our game tonight is one of our favorites, two truths and a lie. So it's played just like the name suggests. I'm going to read three statements or tell three anecdotes. And all of you are going to have to vote on which one is the lie. So be prepared. Okay. First set of scenarios. These have to do with outrageous applicant behavior. Scenario number one. This applicant called the law school dozens of times, repeatedly asking for help with their application. Not only do they call the admissions office, they also called the alumni team, the dean's office, and a number of faculty assistants. When a faculty assistant suggested they email the office with any questions, they responded that they were too busy to do so and demanded a call back. When the office did call them back, they didn't pick up. Okay, so that's number one. Scenario number two is an applicant who showed up, this is before COVID, at our front desk with pizza for the admissions team as a gift. 
When politely told that unfortunately we cannot accept their pizza, they dumped the boxes on the ground and stormed out. Okay, scenario number three. After an in-person event at a school, an applicant asked an admissions officer a number of questions. They then follow them out of the event and onto the subway back towards their hotel, asking questions all the while. They exited the subway 45 minutes later, thankfully a few stops before the hotel. So which one is it? The caller, the pizza, or the subway? Okay, I'm gonna hand the mic to you. We'll pass it down. Which one is the lie? The caller, the pizza delivery, or the subway follower? I have to say the subway follower. That okay, just... we, have, we have one vote for the subway followers, the lie. Okay, the thing with the subway follower is I remember in the podcast, one of you saying something similar to that. I said, but the thing, a podcast listener. So I think it's the pizza. That's my vote. I'm going to say it's the pizza too. I think it'd be pretty ludicrous to throw away a pretty good, perfectly good pizza. Especially in New Haven, but the right. pizza is prime. Two what of was you, it, Miriam? Two of you got it right. It was the pizza. Okay. All right, round All right. of applause I'm in impressed. scenario one. Okay, falling. You're falling behind. You got to pick it up. Okay. Our next set of scenarios has to do with outrageous application essays. Essay number one. The applicant spent a significant portion of his essay discussing his ambition to take his dog to every place mentioned in the Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere During the Dog's Lifetime. But that is sweet. That is a sweet feeling. Uh, the applicant in the second essay used an extended metaphor to compare himself to butter noodles. Some people are hollow, others are filled with cheese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Applicant number three spent the majority of his essay discussing his various luxury vacations to places like Hawaii, Bali, Sicily, in order to explain his interest in international human rights law. Which one is the lie? All right, we're gonna let you go first this time. Is it the traveling dog, the buttered noodles, or luxury vacations? Okay, I a dark part of me hopes that the Johnny Cash one is true because that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I'm gonna guess that's a very creative lie though. Okay, one vote for the traveling Johnny Cash dog. Okay, I think it's the, uh, the luxury vacation. I think most people, you know, if you're applying to Harvard Law School, hopefully you're well-adjusted enough to know that. Well, maybe what about you don't Yale talk Law? About yeah, what about, what about Yale Law? Not everyone there is well-adjusted, right? Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that what you're saying, my friend? I, I, I'd like to be an optimist. I'm going to vote that one. Okay. All right. Folu, it's your I, chance to redeem yourself. Oh. <laughs> no pressure. I was also going to go for luxury vacations. That just seems a little a little out there. We have one vote for Johnny Cash Dog and two for luxury vacations. I like that no one thought that the butter noodles was a lie. Like people are like, that's legitimate. In fact, that was true. And the luxury vacations was the lie. You, your faith in humanity is redeemed. Okay. Let's do a final set based on application essays. Okay. Essay number one. This applicant wrote an addendum exploring the effects of only eating fruit on his digestive system in ample detail and how that impacted his LSAT score. That's <laughs> number one. Number two, this applicant explained that they really would prefer to go to medical school, but because of a poor score on the MCAT, they had switched their interest to health law. Finally, an applicant was deeply committed to decentralizing the hierarchy of power by starting a law firm on the blockchain. 
Which one is the lie? Okay. Blockchain, med school, or digestive problems? You're up. Oh, I think it's going to be med school. I think that why would you why would you expose yourself if you uh, fail the MCAT? Indeed, why would you? Why yeah. would you? And yet, why would you and tell yet. us about your digestive system? That's yeah. That's you're right. <laughs> Not really. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to say digestive system. That just seems a little too personal to really put on a law school. Put on a law school. Okay. Well, it might seem a little too personal, but would it hold that applicant back? <laughs> Can I change my hands? No, 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 no. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with digestive system, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's my vote. We read so many essays about people's digestive systems, you have no idea. There are days where we will text each other. I have read six essays today about someone's digestive system. So that is definitely true. And the only one who got it right with two out of three was the medical school one. Um, someone did in fact write about their law firm on the blockchain as well. I guess people think that sounds cool. All right, I think you guys did great. Round of applause for our volunteers. Great job. Okay, all right. Thank you for bravely volunteering right at the beginning. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, so now we're on to topic number one. What are you looking for? So I'm gonna turn this over to Christy to start. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, okay, so this is the big mystery. What are we looking for? What are admissions officers looking for when they're reading law school applications? And maybe from your perspective from the outside, it can seem kind of bewildering, but for us, it's actually pretty clear. Yes. And you have to remember that the way we design our applications is tied to what we're looking for. So we have created application elements, which are directly tied to helping us figure out and answering the questions that we're, we have about applicants. So just make sure that you keep the purpose in mind as you're working through your application. Right, there's no component that's superfluous. Yes. Superfluous. 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 Superfluous, exactly. All right, so first and foremost, remember that we are looking for applicants who are going to be successful students at our schools. So we're thinking a lot about your academic ability. That is generally reflected by your past academic record, focusing on your undergraduate record, maybe graduate school, standardized test performance, your writing ability as demonstrated in all of your written components, and what your recommenders, and, and here primarily your academic recommenders, recommenders have to say about you. The second big thing we're looking for are is people who are going to contribute to our community and to the legal profession. Um, so we're thinking a lot about your background and your experiences, how you're going to contribute to our classrooms while you're in law school, how you're going to contribute outside the classroom in law school, and then also how you contribute to the broader community. For that, we think a lot about all of the activities you've engaged in, um, your work experiences, and that helps us think about how you're going to engage professionally in the future. Um, and your written materials are actually a really important element of thinking about your community contribution. Um, and we also think a lot about what you hope to do as a legal professional, what you're sharing with us. I will just say that the third thing, whenever I get asked this question at large panels, you know, what are you looking for? I say the thing people often underestimate is that we also look for people who are nice, who are going to be collegial and professional and respectful. Both of us are going to hear it 
if there's someone who's a jerk. Everyone, faculty are going to tell us, staff are going to tell us, we're going to know, and that's not what we're looking for. Uh, it's really, really important for us, and we don't always get it right. You can't always tell, but sometimes you get a hint from the application, from something in the what a recommender says, in the way people present themselves on their application, that they're not particularly nice. And that is, in my view, just absolutely disqualifying. Um, interviews is another thing where you can try to get a read a little bit on someone's personality. Uh, so I think you don't want to underestimate the importance of uh, the fact that you're going to be joining a community and you want to be someone who other people want to be in community with. It's kind of a good rule for life. Yes. Generally law school applications. Okay. So let's turn now to transcripts, um, or in other words, your academic record. Uh, I am a very consciously and intentionally not saying uh, GPA. Everyone always says, what about the numbers? What about this, that? Uh, and yes, a test score is a number, but uh, uh, academic record is much more than just a bottom line number. A transcript is full of data. And we look at it very carefully to get a complete sense of your academic abilities. And remember that we're looking at this undergraduate record or graduate school record. So we're looking at all of your academic record in order to answer kind of that first question that was asked. What are you going to be like as a student? Are you someone who's going to be a successful student? And how will you perform in law school? So let's talk about a few transcript basics. So you're going to have to give us every transcript, uh, basically post high school, um, with one caveat, it's really every college or university transcript. So if you did dual enrollment during high school and community college, we're gonna get those, you'll have to provide those as well. Um, that includes schools you attended only for a course or two, it includes graduate schools. So just make sure that you're thinking ahead, especially uh, some of these international transcripts, which can take quite a lot of time um, in certain countries to get to us. So you're going to submit your transcripts for, I think virtually every school through a uh, wonderful entity called the Law School Admission Council, sometimes called LSAC, sometimes called LSAC. I think it's called LSAC. I think and we determined it's LSAC, I right? Think, yes, I think, yes. I think we had a dispute, but it turns out it's LSAC. A gentle dispute. A gentle dispute, yes. Our first fight. <laughs> Hopefully last fight. So LSAC, or the Law School Admission Council, verifies the authenticity of the transcripts that you provide to them, and then calculates a cumulative GPA across your entire undergraduate record. And for international transcripts, so these are transcripts from international institutions. Canada is not considered international. True. Much to the chagrin of this Canadian, they, they calculate those the way they do American schools. Oh, they do, eh? Yeah, they do. They do, eh? <laughs> Um, and for those non-Canadian international transcripts, the Law School Admission Council will evaluate the transcript and rate it as superior, above average, average, et cetera, to give the admission reader a sense of, of that international academic record. Um, that can take some time. So especially if you have, as Miriam was saying, some of those international non-Canadian transcripts, make sure to submit them to LSAC well in advance of when you want to click submit in your applications. Okay, so with that said, so we get these transcripts, you've submitted them to LSAC, they come to the law school, what happens when we're looking at them? So the most obvious thing is we're looking at your overall performance. Were you a strong student before? Past is prologue. If you were a strong student, we're more confident that you're gonna be a strong student in law school. What should you not worry about? People get really heated up over the transcripts. There's some things just aren't that important. So Christy, what do you think? So one example I'd share is I would not get too worried about a lower grade or two that's not as reflective of your overall academic performance or you know a withdraw or two on your transcript. We definitely understand the urge to 
be concerned about it and kind of wonder, is this going to look really, really anonymous? But we're thinking about your academic record as a whole. Um, in general, don't try to get, don't try not to get too caught up in the little things in law school admissions, especially when they're in the past and kind of out of your control now. Exactly. And then another thing that I think is very relevant to academic performance is awards. Um, so any award is awesome. There's a place on applications uh, to list awards. I'm always most interested in awards uh, that reflect significant standout performance. So like a thesis prize or, you know, something for community contribution. So you win your college-wide community contribution prize. Those are the most impressive because they're telling me something I don't otherwise know about your performance in school. Things like Phi Beta Kappa or Summa Cum Laude, those are nice, but I get a sense of your grades from your grades. Um, and so things like that are often not providing additive information. So if you're highlighting on a resume or on a list, certain awards, if you have more than some people have none, which is also totally fine, but if you have a bunch, try to highlight the ones that are providing additional information um, and not ones that are just reflecting top grades. So we talk a lot about holistic review. Um, something that's equally important is context contextual review, which is when we look at uh, the factors behind your performance. So that includes how you performed relative to other students at your school. So everyone knows grade inflation is a thing at not all schools. Thanks. It is a huge thing and a problematic thing in my opinion, but it's not in my control. Uh, so that is happening at many, many schools, but not all of them and not at all of them at the same rate. Um, military academies, for example, Reed College, for example, those are schools where there's significant grade deflation compared to other, other schools. And the CAS report, the credential Assembly Service Report, which is something LSAC puts together, provides us with information on your contextual performance. So I'm going to make Christy do this part because it's complicated and I tend to get it wrong. Okay. Sure. Talk All right. about the so CAS report. No I'll pressure. Still it down. So the Credential Assembly Service or CAS report, as it's called, gives us a percentile ranking of your GPA for your school. So in other words, it tells us what percentage of students at your undergraduate institution graduated with a GPA that was higher than your GPA or lower. So as Miriam was describing with grade deflation, a 3.8 here, a 3.8 there, a 3.5 here, a 3.5 there are not necessarily the same. So the report tells us also the percentage distribution of GPAs at the school. So what percentage of students received a 4.0 and up? Some schools will go all the way up to a 4.33 with the way their grading scales work. Everyone freaks out about that. Well, my school doesn't give A pluses. Do you take that into we account? We get it. We get it. We definitely we get, get it. it. Yes, we get it. I promise. And for the, the credential assembly service helps us understand that. So you've got these percentages of, you know, how many people graduated with GPAs in these different brackets, and it helps us get a sense of your individual undergraduate school and puts your individual academic record in context of your school. The other thing that's really nice on these CAS reports is they also help us figure out how rigorous your program is. And I always get asked, well, does it break it down by major? And unfortunately it doesn't, it is school-wide, which is is what it is, um, but it provides information on the percentage of LSAT scores at each school. So for example, what percentage of students at your school scored in the 95th percentile on the LSAT and up, in the 90th to 94th, in the you know 85th to 89th. And so if you're at a school where tons and tons of students are getting tippity top LSAT scores, that tells us something about the rigor of your peers and can also help us contextualize your GPA. So maybe you have a slightly lower GPA, but you're at a school with a really rigorous peer group, that can be some helpful context for us. So there's a lot of really helpful information uh, in 
the CAS report. There's other things that we look at in a transcript to help us evaluate rigor. Were you taking graduate level courses? That's a rigorous thing to do. Um, were you taking multiple intro level courses or underloading your senior year? Maybe less of a rigorous thing to do, although I totally get it. Sometimes senior spring, you just want to take one less course, also totally fine. We look at great trends. Do they go up over time, down, stay the same? Um, obviously, an upward trend is a really good thing. It's not uncommon for someone to switch a major. Um, as a former STEM major, it makes me sad, but a lot of people you know, try out that STEM major their first year, realize it isn't for them, and then their, their GPA goes way up. Very common. We always take a look at that. Um, the biochemistry major in me cries a little bit inside every time, but it is what it is. Um, so we definitely look for those trends as well. Uh, and then I just want to mention graduate school transcripts. Um, these aren't the GPAs that we report publicly, um, but please don't think that they don't matter. They're extremely important as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for some people, a really strong graduate record can help us get a sense of your academic potential now and can help overcome, if you will, a weaker undergraduate record. And, and sometimes it's the reverse, right? Sometimes you'll see someone with a really, really strong undergraduate record, and maybe for whatever reason, their graduate record isn't as strong. That makes it sometimes gives you some pause, even though they have that really strong undergraduate record. So that's transcripts. Should okay. we move to everyone's favorite topic? Everyone's favorite? Guess what's everyone's favorite topic? Everyone's favorite. They're, they love talking about it. Everyone loves to talk about, yes, the LSAT. Yes. Yes. The We've got people nodding in the front yes. row. Testing, testing, <laughs> testing. Okay. Standardized tests. So for most law schools, this means submitting either a GRE score or an LSAT score. Um, so I suppose as a threshold matter, we should explain why law Why are we doing why, this? Why do law schools why are we take making standardized you do this tests? horrible thing? Yes. There's a couple different reasons, um, but for all accredited law schools, our accrediting body is called the American Bar Association or the ABA. Um, and the ABA publishes various standards that every accredited law school must adhere to in order to maintain their accreditation. And that's something you definitely want to do as a law school. Yes. You definitely want to be an accredited law school. So one of those standards is standard 503. Chapter five of the standards is everything to do with admissions and student life. Standard 503 requires all accredited law schools to utilize a quote, valid and reliable test in the admissions process. And the American Bar Association has stated explicitly that both the LSAT and the GRE general test count as a quote, valid and reliable test for purposes of the standard. So you've probably heard over the last couple of years, a lot of discussion about maybe law schools will go test optional the way a lot of undergraduate institutions have gone test optional in recent years. Um, generally, all accredited law schools must require a standardized test to be in compliance with standard 503 and remain accredited. There's been some proposals from different ABA subcommittees over the past couple of years about amending standard 503 to allow for test optionality. But as of right now, pending when we're recording, there's no real serious challenge. So we expect for this cycle, you will certainly be taking a test if you want there's to no question the test is the cycle and i think there was a movement to remove or to significantly amend 503 but that's dead in the water right now so it was very live last year and then it just died this past spring so right now test optional is off the table there are some small exceptions if you read all of standard 503 that up to 10 percent of your class you know if you take them straight from your undergrad with certain other information, you can bring them in test optional. You can read the standard and see what you think, but that is a very, very limited 
way that schools can do test optional and wide ranging test optional is for now off the table. And importantly, even if the ABA amended standard 503, that would just allow schools to remain accredited and be test optional. Many schools will likely continue taking requiring a standardized test because that goes to kind of the second purpose, which is a standardized test when used appropriately provides one data point as to your academic potential. Um, Many of you might be in the early stages of the application process or making the test. Who's taken a test so far? Okay, who has not? Raise them high. Who has not? Okay. Okay. Who's so considering who has not taking the LSAT? Who's doing LSAT? Who's thinking GRE? All right. So we've got some people okay. debating. All right, cool. Um, yeah. So generally speaking, if you're still deciding between the LSAT and the GRE, uh, I usually advise applicants to try out a couple practice questions before you make the decision. You can find tons of practice questions online for free through resources like Khan Academy. You can typically check out um, test practice books from your um, college library, from your local public library. Um, Miriam, what advice do you have for applicants who are considering whether the GRE or the LSAT is so the right test for them? The LSAT is sort of the baseline, I would say. I mean, it's just been around for a lot longer. So if you're considering the GRE, the first thing I would say is make sure all the law schools you're interested in take it. Um, most do nowadays, but not all do. Um, so the LSAT will provide a little bit of additional flexibility. On the flip side, some graduate programs take the GRE. So if you're applying to joint degree programs, um, either in the future or simultaneously, or you already have, so you have a GRE on record, you might be able to avoid some duplicative work by doing the GRE instead. Um, the GRE is in some ways more convenient. Um, it's offered in many more locations. It's offered much more frequently. Um, I find that some of our service member um, applicants disproportionately take the GRE. Our international applicants will disproportionately take the GRE just because of the convenience factor. So think about what works best for you and your schedule. On the other hand, with the GRE, it is three separate scores. So you not only have to get the score that you're happy with on a single test, it's like three mini tests in one. Um, and we do care about the quantitative score and the writing score and the verbal score for the GRE. Don't think that you can just, as I think for some graduate programs, they only care about one or two of those scores. We care quite a lot about all three. So in some ways, like putting together a very high, strong GRE score can be a little bit harder because you have to nail three things simultaneously. That doesn't mean lots of people don't do it, um, but I would be thoughtful about whether you think you can perform well in all of those components. And whichever test you take, if there's some additional context you want to provide for the admissions officer reading your application, you typically have the opportunity to provide that context in an addendum. Dun, 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 addenda. Sorry. I don't, <laughs> I don't love them. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> if you submit an addenda, um, keep it short, keep it concise. Don't mention your digestive system. What are the most, what would you say are the most common addenda that you read related to testing? I read so many addenda related to testing. Okay. Technical issues, proctor issues, health issues, um, a history of underperformance on standardized tests relative to academic performance. For example, you know, I graduated SUMA top whatever 5% of my class, but my SAT score, my um, ACT score was very low. So I don't think the test reflects um, my ability to perform. Some of these are totally, I make fun of them a little bit, but some of them I think are very reasonable um, to include. Certainly if there was, the, the question in my mind is always, well, why didn't you retake the test? So if there was a proctor issue or um, you know a health issue, 
you can retake the test. And so, and then I kind of don't need to know so much about the first test, which maybe went a little bit awry um, because hopefully you retake and perform to the best of your abilities the second time. So I would be thoughtful about whether if you have a stronger retake, whether you really need to say anything at all. Something like a history of underperformance on standardized tests, maybe it makes more sense. That's not something that can be erased with a retake. Um, or if you know you took a later test date um, and you weren't able for whatever reason to retake, maybe including an explanation in an addendum um, is fine, makes sense. Always keep them short. Three or four sentences is, is enough. If it's more than three or four sentences, I would question why it's longer than that. On the subject of retakes, um, you might really consider before, I think there's sometimes this reflexive advice about, oh, retake, R&R, retake and reapply. Right. Um, really think a lot about whether you can do perform significantly better on the test before you invest the time totally. in retaking. Yeah, there's a real cost benefit trade-off. There's actually research on this on like how people do on retakes and all the research shows it's just over two points. It's two point something points up on the LSAT is the average increase that is with a retake. So you should assume that's going to be you, that you will get an extra two to three points if you retake, which is not insubstantial. I don't want to minimize that. Um, and we do see significantly larger score jumps sometimes, uh, but they're fairly uh, unusual. So and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of psychological energy, a lot of emotional energy, a lot of money. Uh, so you should really think about whether that's the best investment of resources. You know, maybe if you had a horrible health issue that first test and you were way under your practice test, you just know it wasn't your best effort. That's different than, oh, I was practice testing at a 168 and I got a 166. Maybe it's worth it, but I would be thoughtful about the cost benefit analysis. And be wary of taking any of these tests, multiple, multiple, many, many, many times. Yes. There is that lifetime limit. I think it's five, seven lifetime, five and five years. So just, they keep on changing the rules on that. And there were some COVID related exceptions, but I would read those rules carefully as well and try not to hit the limit. Do we want to mention something? It's not in our thing about cancel, score cancel. Do you have thoughts on that? The so pay to, pay to cancel your score business. So for those who haven't um, for those who are a little earlier in this process, there is um, a system that allows you to view the score you got and then cancel it. Um, for I a fee. For a fee. I think both of us have very strong opinions on um, the systemic impact of having we a fee-based score cancellation system. I will also say that many people do, there's some information about this. Um, many people do cancel their highest yes, score. Yes, they do. Um, so really, really think about it. Uh, I, I'm very wary of any system that allows that allows an entity to profit off of um, anxiety, anxiety, and, yeah, anxiety and uncertainty. Um, but that that might be a topic for for another day. Yeah. I'll also I will say though that um, when we see score cancellations, um, unless you see many, many of them often we try not to hold it against the applicant. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why it might make the best sense for you to cancel. If you had a health issue that day, um, or if there was a significant technical disruption. Um, so don't, don't worry that if we see a scare cancellation, we're going to hold it against On you. On the flip side, don't worry that if you have two scores and one is lower, we're going to hold that against you. I often say to my team, that I, I appreciate the effort of retaking it. It shows a real commitment and that you bet on yourself in a way, even if you retake it and you get the same score. I'm often impressed by someone's sort of grit and resolve to, to try again, to give their one more shot at it. So don't feel like you need to cancel it. I, I don't think there's 
a disadvantage to the applicant to have a cancel on record. I also don't think there's a disadvantage to having two scores, one of which is lower on record at all. Um, I, I would never, and in fact, we never do hold that against anyone. Okay, some final thoughts on standardized tests. Um, study really hard, do your best, give yourself a lot of time to prepare for the test. Um, see if you can find a study buddy. I think that can really help to yeah. just have the the support of someone who's in it with you, but try not to over-index on the importance of standardized tests to the law school admissions process. You, there's a lot more to your application than your standardized test score. There's a lot more to you than your standardized test score. We know that, we know other law schools know that, and we hope you realize that too. All right, total topic shift to letters of recommendation. All right. Basics, basics, basics. So these are also submitted through LSAC. Um, you basically, you submit a little form, it generates a request to your recommender to submit a letter, and then their letter goes straight to LSAC and kind of stays banked there, uh, which is a pretty nice uh, system to have. Um, when you submit those letter of recommendation requests and generates in the system, you are going to be asked whether you waive your right to see your letters, letter of recommendation. Um, the answer to that question should always be yes. It's yes. This is not one of those lawyerly, it depends moments. No, the answer is yes. It is a little off market and, and actually kind of a red flag to admissions officers if you do not waive your right to see the letter. Um, and one nice thing about submitting through LSAC is that you you get to create this bank of letters and then you can kind of pick and choose among the letters when you submit. Right. So if one school wants professional and another wants more academic, you can have like six letters and kind of be like, this one is for this school. These two are for this school, which is kind of a nice way to have it. So who should you ask to write these, these important letters of recommendation for you? So you want people who know you really well, um, ideally in an academic context and even more ideally in multiple settings. So that can include the classroom, um, office hours, maybe they supervised a thesis, maybe you were their RA or TA or some other kind of student employee, um, maybe you worked with them on a major project. So you want to try to find someone who knows you in these multiple settings so they can speak about different aspects of your academic performance. Um, so certainly at YLS, uh, we have a very strong preference for academic recommenders. And by academic, we mean people who have supervised your academic work. Yes, someone who knows you in an academic context. And for Harvard Law School as well, we also have a strong, strong preference to see academic letters of recommendation. We strongly recommend that you submit at least one academic letter of recommendation. You're, you're applying to be a student. This goes back to kind of that first thing we're looking for. We're thinking about who will be successful students at our schools. And so it's very helpful for us to hear from people who know you in that type of academic context. Um, there's other law schools that might have different preferences who are not here tonight. So always make sure to read the application instructions and any other guidance they provide really I'm carefully. just gonna like double click on read the application instructions, read the application instructions, read the application instructions. It's super annoying. There's no common app. Every school is a little bit different. Our application instructions are intended to be helpful. I know they're kind of annoying and nitpicky. We try to write them in the most helpful, most detailed way, as does every school. And you should read them very carefully. Like read them before you start, read them in the middle, check them again at the end, just to make sure you didn't miss anything um, because there's a lot of nuance, I think, to each different school's process. Okay, so let's say you're in the very lucky position of having multiple academic recommenders and you're trying to pick and choose. How would you go about doing that? Don't just pick the person you feel most comfortable with. I feel like sometimes people just feel at ease with certain people and they default to them rather than really being thoughtful about who can provide the most useful information to the admissions process. People you know from lower level courses, less helpful. 
So knowing you as a freshman or a sophomore, if the relationship sort of ended at that point is less helpful than people who taught you in upper level courses, which were more sophisticated and at a higher level. Um, courses where the skill set doesn't line up at all with law school. So my sad for me, all of my, you know, biochemistry classes, which can talk about my amazing pipetting skills and my knowledge of the Krebs cycle, not as relevant as my, you know, social sciences classes, which thankfully I also took. Introductory language classes, not very helpful. If you took an upper, upper level seminar where you were writing papers in a foreign language, those skills are really comparable. You know, taking, as I did, Italian one to go on my study abroad program, that professor loved me. I was really good at rolling my R's and sounding, you know, faux Italian, uh, but not a helpful law school recommender. In general, though, look, one thing that's really never important to us is how sort of Ugh. supposedly important this recommender is don't in care. the department or whatnot. Always go for the substance of the relationship and the substance of what they're going to say about you over somebody's title, right? So we sometimes call it substance over signature. Right. Um, Non-academic recommenders. So when, if ever, are those appropriate? So despite our very strong preference for academic letters, Sometimes there just are circumstances where people can't get those letters anymore. They've been out of school for eight years, 10 years, 20 years, and it's ridiculous to think that they could go back to professors. Totally understandable. Professional recommendations in that context can be really excellent, especially if you ask your recommenders to really focus on the same sorts of skills that you are using in an academic context, analytical reasoning reasoning, research and writing, critical thinking. Those are much more helpful skills for a professional recommender to talk about than sort of the hardcore professional stuff or the nitty gritty of the job. Um, and sometimes you just have an awesome professional recommender. You have two academic, and then you just have a professional recommender who can talk about some of those academic type skills. Totally fine to add that in as well. One thing though that you should never, never submit is a letter of recommendation from a family friend or your neighbor or a family member or a peer, it's really bad judgment. And it's a, it's, it, you have secondhand embarrassment sometimes when you read an application so file where there's a letter of recommendation from someone's mom. I'm a mom. I love my kids. I bet I could write a great letter of recommendation. I, hope I don't they know never if I could about me. my kids. I'll be totally honest. <laughs> I would feel awkward about it, but it's very cringe. There's like cringy moments when I think people think they're being cute I remember I had one applicant who like crowdsourced all the people from like their student groups to write them like a joint letter. Do you remember that one? You do too. It was memorably cringe. Like I just remember like, you know, that icky feeling you get where you're like, oh, oh no. Like, and it, it's just, it's not right. Like it, it just is bad. So don't, don't be cringe. Don't be that person. Okay. How many letters? I think we're both two min, four max. Mm -hmm. okay. I have three max. Oh, you're three max. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm two minimum, four maximum. Harvard is three maximum. Two is fine. Two is great. Two is sometimes better. Sometimes two is better. Often perhaps two is better. Um, sometimes that third letter, if it's weaker, will dilute the impact yes. of the two really, really strong ones. Don't, this is the applications are not a more is more proposition. We are reading these applications in sort of a set amount of time generally. The more there is in there, we're not just going to spend twice as long. It's just going to get diluted. So be very thoughtful and um, self-editing in terms of the materials that you're submitting. What should they include? Okay, we've already talked about the skills that are relevant to law school. They can talk about who you are. Remember our criteria at the beginning, who you are as a student, 
who you would be as a community member. So did you overcome a midterm grade, a bad midterm grade, and you really improved? That's great. Did you help facilitate class discussion? Uh, did you support fellow students who were struggling? Did you come to office hours and really participate? Those are all things that are about who you are as a student, but a community member as well that can be really, really helpful. The other thing that letters can be awesome for is providing context about your program, the rigor of your courses, awards that you got. Let's say you took upper level graduate courses in the department and almost no one does that. That's what a recommender can tell us. This is one of the few students I've seen in 20 years who took multiple graduate level courses. I know their grades are perhaps the lowest on their transcript, but that's a reflection of the rigor of those courses and their you know, determination to you know, extend themselves. That's a really, really helpful thing. It's best when letters of recommendation focus on um, information that really comes from the firsthand knowledge and the actual relationship with you as a student or a colleague or as a professional. Um, we really recommend that your recommenders don't, we recommend that your recommenders don't just repeat information from your resume to the more is not always more proposition it would be stronger to have a shorter letter that really focuses on your substance and your relationship rather than lengthy descriptions of courses or reciting your essays or your resumes. Um, often that can really feel like filler because it is. Okay. And a final tip. So recommenders are people. They're usually very busy. Um, be respectful, be grateful. Give them lots of time, be helpful to them, provide them with a draft of your personal statement, your resume, a reminder of what class you took with them, what essay you wrote for them. You don't want to, you're not going to write the letter for them that is not appropriate to be very clear. If someone asks you to write a letter, it's probably not going to be a great letter. Um, when you're writing it for yourself, you might want to look elsewhere for a letter. Um, but really, there's lots of ways you can be helpful that are not writing the letter for yourself. Um, and just make sure you say, a big thank you to people uh, because it does take a lot of work. Good letters are definitely a labor of love. Okay, on to essays. essays. So in letters of recommendation, we get to hear about you from someone who knows you, ideally someone who knows you really well. And the essays, I think for many of us are, are some of our favorite parts of the application because it's when we get to hear from you What kind of butter directly. noodle are you? Are you filled with cheese? Are you hollow? I don't know. <laughs> it's always a mystery. But think of these essays as an opportunity to share more about yourself, about your goals. Um, it's an opportunity to reflect reflect on your vision. And as much work as it is to draft one of these law school essays, it, I really think it does force you to kind of uh, reflect. It's a good developmental moment, if you will. All right. So let's talk about some basics of essays, length and formatting. Usually these law school application essays are pretty short. Um, they're often one or two pages, double spaced. Schools usually ask you to, um, as I say, double space the essays so that our, Always our eyes space. can read them. Except Use... for your resume, double space everything. Please, God, double space. <laughs> um, 11 or 12 points, some sort of standard font, one inch margins, standard margins. Um, and I, uh, the more essays I read, the more I thank you for following those formatting uh, requirements in the instructions because our eyes really struggle to make it through when you've got teeny tiny font I or very small margins. so much. Don't make us hate you when we see your font. Make us love you with a beautiful, large, well-spaced font. Another nice feature, this is off topic, on your different pieces, put your name, your LSAC number, and 
personal statement, like the title of the document up top. So then when we're flipping through your application on our iPad or our computer, it's like really easy to find things. Just like think about the reader. You should always be thinking about the reader when you write anything. And that's like just a nice touch, a professional, nice touch. And on that point, actually, um, it's very, very rare for someone to be reading anything in paper. I know very few admissions no, offices yeah. that read on paper at Not this point. Anymore. Typically it's on an iPad or on a computer. Yeah, that's right. That's why I'm always swiping my finger when I talk about reading files, because that's what I do until I get tendonitis. <laughs> so read, as we were saying earlier, we're going to now triple click on it. Read all the application instructions carefully. Most schools are actually very clear with what size font, what size margins they want. It's especially true this year to read application instructions carefully with essays because there's now more variation than ever in law school essay prompts and requirements. Um, should we speak a bit about the different essay statements that 100%. each of our schools are going to be using? We should. Who gets, I get to go first. Do so I get to go first? Okay. So I'm very excited about this. So um, as I'm sure you all know, um, in light of the recent um, court decision, schools were just looking at their applications. It was a good moment to reflect, I think, on our application components um, and think about what was working and um, ways we might want to change. So we spent the summer reflecting on our core values as an institution, and we were honing essay prompts that we think really tied in with some of those values. So so we still have our personal statement. Um, we expect people to reuse their personal statement that they're using for other schools. No YYLS, please. We don't need it. We don't want it. Don't waste the space. Um, and we've always had a 250 word essay, which was really core um, to our identity. It's about how you would contribute to our intellectual community, which is something that's really important for us. It's about an idea or issue. And we've made that even more clear that that's what that's for. And this year we are debuting um, four optional essays, um, each one connected to a different core value, um, community involvement and contribution, um, accomplishments, leadership and innovation, uh, determination and resilience, and then open-mindedness and willingness to change your mind. So we're really excited. The prompts you can see on our website um, are up there. Um, it's one page double spaced. Um, you don't have to submit any of those. You can submit one if you choose. Um, and I'm actually really excited to see what folks are going to do with a little bit more direction um, for that essay. Um, and we have removed, um, we had an optional diversity statement, which was a very loose prompt. Um, and this is what is there now instead. Um, and I think we're going to get some really wonderful answers and I'm excited to read them. Okay, so for Harvard Law School, we also took this summer to really think carefully about what we want to hear from applicants. Um, and in the spirit of being more direct, um, we now have two required essays. We used to have one required, one optional. Now we have a two required essays. One is called a statement of purpose, and the other is a statement of perspective. Each needs to be at minimum one page double-spaced um, and then up to two pages double-spaced for each one. So you could submit minimum two total pages of essays or maximum four total pages of essays. The statement of purpose prompt is also available on our website and it asks you to share essentially why do you want to go to law school and, and how law school and the legal education will fit in with your goals for your future. And the statement of purpose prompt asks you, excuse me, the statement of perspective prompt asks you to reflect on yourself, um, to think about who you are, your interests, your background, your experiences, and how all of that will shape your engagement in law school um, and in the legal community and the legal profession. So I, I just think it's important, and I know we all know it's a lot of work, which is one of the reasons we made these essays optional this year, um, is to really be responsive to these prompts. Uh, we, we get that it's work um, to do it. Um, 
don't try to repurpose things you did for one thing if it doesn't really fit. Uh, better to leave something out if it's optional rather than squish something in. Uh, if something's non-responsive, we're going to know. You know, sometimes I read 250 word essays that are like clearly written in response to a Stanford like short answer. And it's it's like almost disqualifying. Like just, you don't care enough to answer my question. Like, why did you spend $85 on the fee? Like, it's just, it's not, it's just not worth it. So I would really be thoughtful about making sure that your, your answers answer the questions. You can reuse things as appropriate, but I wouldn't do it reflexively. And then when you're picking topics, just make sure that you're sharing things um, that we wouldn't otherwise know from the other parts of your application. Don't restate your resume. Um, don't tell the same story multiple times. Uh, it can be going more in depth on something. So you can talk about the same thing, but different elements of it. Totally awesome. Um, or you can just do a totally different topic. It's so you can have a book that like every chapter is a different element and goes in depth on a single topic, or you can have like a collection of short stories where each one is really independent of the other. Either approach really works in an application, but you don't want to read the same story in different chapters. In general, in these essays, we want to hear from you about you and learn more about you in your own voice. Okay. We have resumes and interviews. We'll try to, I think, we're, go through those we're quickly. Good. We're doing we're, good. We're good. We're yakkers, so we can go forever. Okay, <laughs> resumes and activities. Okay, so let's do resumes. Um, so what, what is the point of a resume? It says, ask the career counsel, former career counselor. It is a marketing document and the product is you. Okay, you're selling yourself. Your goal is to make it super easily accessible um, and accurately, of course, always accurately reflect your relevant accomplishments, but in the best possible light. Someone should be able to look at your resume for 30 seconds and get the highlights. If I have to spend more than 30 to 60 seconds, it has failed as a resume. It has failed its basic function. Right. You don't want to have someone looking at it for 30 seconds and be like, what is, what is this? What are they doing? What are they doing right now? I'm, maybe it's here. Maybe it's there. What um, are they interested in? What do they care about? Like you have to be able to get it right away. So a word on audience in life and in law school applications, you should maybe think about whether you need more than one resume. And in life, you will probably have multiple versions of your resume, especially as your career continues to develop. Um, some will have more or less emphasis on different experiences, depending on who you are marketing yourself to. Law schools often have very specific instructions about what they want to see on a resume. Some law schools might want an exhaustive list of everything you've ever done. Others expect a more curated resume and they might have, for example, application forms that have you fill out all the employment you've engaged in. So as always, Reveal follow instructions. Okay. So for us at YLS, the resume is a backup document. Um, it used to be optional, but we eventually made it mandatory for various reasons that are sort of irrelevant at this point because we have a college activities and post-college activities sections, which are not optional at all. And we view as sort of the primary source of this information. So we expect the resume to be streamlined. Um, so that's just true for us. And I think that goes to show you want to think about the audience. Okay, formatting for your resumes. Standard font, reasonable font size. If it's smaller than 11, I can't read it. Um, same goes for margins, minimum of 0.5 inches. There should be white space. It shouldn't look squishy. Um, you can use formatting like bolding and italics to make things stand out. Um, you must use those styles consistently. You must use M dashes and N dashes consistently. You must consistently, you know, format dates. Please, like, please just, just do that stuff. Um, you do not 
and should not use colors or images or icons. There are certain industries where that is standard practice. Um, the legal profession is a small C conservative industry where that is not standard practice. And that is the profession that you are applying to be a we part of. We do not of. need your headshot. Please, no headshots. No headshots. No headshots ever. On the sometimes controversial question. It is controversial. <laughs> yes, we get a lot of pushback on this. Um, I really, really recommend one to two pages. It's like really- Emphasis on the one. It's too. really rare that a law school applicant needs more than one page to really adequately convey their experience. I myself at age 40 have a one page resume. I have a one page version. I have a two page version. I have a couple different versions, but I have a one page version of my resume. Yes. So the key touchstones for what you should include recency and relevance. If it's recent and relevant, it stays. If it's not recent or not relevant, leave it out. In terms of content, the two primary sections, we all know this to be true, are education and experience. Experience is not just work experience. It can be extracurriculars, it can be volunteer, it can be selected. Those are the two big things. Um, usually you start with education when you're applying to an educational institution, that will eventually flip when you are applying for more professional opportunities later. And then everything underneath that's in reverse chronological order. Uh, one of the primary purposes of the resume is to let us create a timeline of what you've done and when you've done it. If you start to break it out into many, many subsections, the timeline function is gone. Then you have to piece together, oh, wait, here's the volunteer. Oh, wait, here's the part-time. Here's the public interest opportunity. Here's the education. And it's impossible. And we're past the 30-second mark, and I'm over it. Keep it tight. You want to have just a couple of sections so it's really, really easy. What do you do with time gaps, which many people have? Just think about the best way to fill those in. Um, should you have a resume entry that reflects what you were doing, whether that was being a caregiver, being um, a, a stay-at-home parent, totally fine to include that. Sometimes an addendum is more appropriate, uh, depending on what was going on, if it was a major health issue, something like that. Um, education section, it's post-high school, no high school, anything. On your resume, it's over. Um, you should include in-progress degrees. You can put in progress or just don't include the graduation date, but that's please no high school. I think the key info for the education section is really the name of the institution, if appropriate, the location of the institution, the degree, the degree date, um, maybe a major or minor, graduation honors. Um, education, the education section can be a really good place to streamline by having, for example, maybe some significant extracurricular activities just listed as as activities under the education section instead of trying to piece them into that major timeline in experiences. Um, it's sometimes more efficient to include those there rather than in making new big separate sections every which place. Um, you don't need to include your LSAT or GPA. Don't do that. And please never your SAT score or your, your GMAT score, your MCAT score, especially if it's low and terrible and the reason why you're not going to med school. Don't. We've seen it all and a lot of it's bad. Okay, so what's in this experience section? Again, it can be paid full-time employment. It can be part-time, volunteer. It can be key extracurricular activities. Just have to be clear what the thing is, um, the name of the employer organization, location, title, dates, and a little description. So the description is the thing. That's what matters the most. Short and snappy is your guiding, um, guiding rules. Um, you're going to have sentences or bullet points. You're going to start with an action verb, um, and you're going to use details and examples wherever possible. Um, you want to include accomplishments, not just responsibilities. That really makes it more um, impressive, but also easier to understand what you did. No technical terms, no jargon. Okay. 
a couple optional sections of resumes. Um, sometimes people will have publications, a skill sections that might include significant language skills, um, an interest section. I think in general, the less is more is, is probably the right adage here. Um, only include things like that if it's really important for the reader to know to better understand the whole of your application. You wanna talk interviews? Yeah, Any other? I think let's do interviews. Interviews, and then we'll go. I'm with okay. you, yeah. All right, last but not least, interviews. Not all law schools conduct interviews as part of the application process, and those that do sometimes use a couple of different approaches. So some utilize different software platforms that will allow, um, the, the platform will generate a question for you that the that the law school admissions, we, neither one yeah, of us we use don't this, do this, so we're and like then you get recorded, little out of our answering it. Kira is Kira, the name I, of one of these. We're talked um, out on that, don't ask questions. Yeah. So, but in general, the video is generated. You're not actually talking to somebody, you're responding to a prompt that's generated, and then your video is added to your application file and presumably reviewed by the admissions I can officers. literally not think of anything worse than watching those videos. Yes, that face you just made in the front row, that's how I feel. I'm like, oh, <laughs> bad. Okay. Some people love them, like different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Other interviews are a, a full live conversation. I think almost always that I know of on Zoom um, or a similar video platform with an admissions officer. And I think there are some schools that may do interviews with alumni in your area. Some do group interviews. There's at least the like one interviews. school does a group interview. Some of them so there's are lots live. of variation. Yeah. I think for a lot of those schools that that have their conduct their interviews live though it's an optional part of the application process um and on that note schools really differ a lot in the optionality of interviews um some schools might interview everybody some schools might give everyone the opportunity to do one of these cure interviews um for hls we conduct all of our interviews by invitation and they are a required component for anybody who's admitted so there's nobody who is admitted to hls without doing an interview but we don't guarantee that everyone gets an interview yeah so at yls we're in the second year of our interview pilot program um so we will interview some applicants we're strongly considering um but not all so there can be two applicants who are equally being strongly considered and we will it is actually quite random, select some, but not um, all to be interviewed. Um, and an interview is neither necessary nor sufficient for admission. Uh, last year, we allowed people to opt in to the interview pilot. This year, it is not opt-in. If we want to interview you, we will ask you. And if you choose not to, that will negatively reflect. I suspect <laughs> that's what we will that what we will assume. It will be a do not pass go. Be, yes, it will be a do not pass go. But last year, I think well over 90% of people opted in. So it, it feels um, fine to do it that way. I have two pieces of advice for preparing for interviews. Know yourself and know your application materials um, and, and probably get to know a little bit about the school. You're probably going to get at least some questions that touch on something you have already shared in your resume or your essay. Um, there many admissions officers will look at the interview as an opportunity to go deeper on what you've already shared. So it can be surprising if somebody seems caught off guard when you ask them a question about their deep passion for reproductive justice that they wrote about in a whole two-page essay, and they're not sure what you're talking about. So know, know what you already told us, because we might ask more about it. Yeah. And you don't need to know a ton about the school, but like I, we had an interview where someone didn't know what city we were in, just like it was like a totally different city in a different part of the country. And it was, I felt terribly for them. Like it was clearly just very unfortunate. And I understand it. people get confused. It's stressful, but you know, there's like sort of a bare minimum of being aware of what the situation is and who you're interviewing with. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that's pretty easy 
to either not mention it all if you're not sure or to to get right if you're gonna if you're gonna do that. Um, I would suggest practicing ahead of time. You don't want to sound like overly rehearsed. Um, we provide every possible interview question to applicants ahead of time um, to avoid sort of like shell shock um, and to avoid sort of I guess disadvantaging people who maybe are not so quick on their feet. Um, but for other schools, I completely agree with what Christy said. Look at every entry on your resume um, and every topic you brought up. And I would kind of think of, okay, I mentioned this extracurricular activity in my personal statement. Think of one big thing that happened in that activity, either something you're, you're proud of, something you're proud of or a challenge you overcome or something that was really hard that you learned a lesson from. If you have in your mind, like six to eight anecdotes of accomplishments, things that you've learned lessons from, from various extracurriculars, work experiences, whatever, you'll be able to answer a ton of questions. You'll be able to go through that little Rolodex of experiences and a lot of questions you'll be able to have something to pull from. And similarly, think about yourself. Like what's um, something that really interests you? What's a book you've read recently? What's like? a fun fact? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Like have like, like five our, fun like facts. During our game. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, final piece of advice, be ready to answer that dreaded age old, terrible opening interview question. Um, what, what? Tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. Which we don't use. Do you use that? No, one? no. We don't I do mean, it. It's a terrible question. But someone might. And in your life, um, you almost certainly get that in some interview where someone is settling down and trying to buy themselves a couple couple moments of time. Um, I think it's one of the hardest questions because you're not necessarily sure where the interviewer wants you to go, um, but try to look at it as an opportunity to really share a bit about your passions and motivations. Okay, we're done yakking. So now we're gonna do questions. You submitted some questions in advance or many of you submitted questions yes. in advance and we selected a couple of them. Um, do we wanna see if people will read them? We'll, we'll say them live or do we have to read them? Why don't we read them? Okay. She's the boss. What can I say? Okay. Well, she, Christy's in charge. Okay. This one was from Isabella. How do you consider international students who are finishing college degrees in U.S. institutions? Is that a question for me? Yes. I don't, I don't think I would view them any differently than I would view any other applicant. I, and I say this as someone who was, that actually was me. That's why you're asking you me this question. question. Oh, oh, now I get it. Okay, so I, I'm Canadian and I went to college in the United States. Um, I, I think it's important in general, if you're uh, a non-US citizen, to be thoughtful about um, the, the immigration situation, right? How are, do you want to stay in the United States? Are you aware of the way that you're going to do that? Canadians have access to a visa called the TN visa. This is not immigration advice. I'm not an immigration lawyer that not everyone has access to, you know, do you want to go home? Can you practice law in your home country with a U.S. law degree? So I just think it's important for you as a human, if you're a non-U.S. citizen, to be thoughtful about that. Certain employers can sponsor visas, certain can't. Um, and the only thing that I think would be complicated is if someone seemed to be unrealistic about their opportunities as a non-citizen. So for example, if they really double down, a, I want to clerk for a circuit court, well, non-citizens can't clerk for US courts. That's a problem because it makes me worry that they haven't really thought through the implications um, and, and have realistic career goals. We don't want anyone to be disappointed. That is very rarely the case. Most um, non-citizens who are applying to law school in the US have thought a lot about that decision. Um, and so I would evaluate them in exactly the same ways for the same criteria as I would any other applicant. Same. 
Oh, look at that. I got a same. Okay, great. All right. So I will um, read or try to combine the second two. So we had questions from Riley and from Justin. Um, and they're a little bit different, but I think related. So one was about the impact of seeing applicants who didn't follow a um, pre-law track um, as an undergraduate. And then this Justin's question was about um, applicants with a STEM and quantitative background, which I think is probably considered a non um pre-law track. So I'm wondering how you would consider those sort of, in some ways less traditional, although fairly common, I think, in our applicant pool applicants. Sure. I mean, I think in a way it's a trick question because I'm not sure if there is necessarily a traditional pre-law path anymore. Maybe there never was, but it's I think the there ever was. Yeah. Even if, even if that was true at one point in time, at this point we see an applicant pool, and I think both of us see incoming classes where people come from all different types of academic academic backgrounds and all different types of professional backgrounds. And in a lot of ways, that's the beauty of coming to one of our schools. Um, our professors enjoy teaching classes of people who bring to bear a lot of different perspectives and skill sets and methodologies and thought processes to the material. And the thing about law is it's really relevant to, to everything, right? Like the tentacles of law go out to everything from STEM to art history, um, to any discipline in an undergraduate course catalog. Uh, and that's, I know, I guess if you're from, if you feel like, gosh, I wonder if I'm from a non-traditional background, will that hurt me? I don't think it will. I dare say maybe it will even help you in the application process because most law school admissions offices are hoping to build a class of people who bring a lot of different perspectives and skill sets. Yeah. I just think it's important for every applicant to make sure they communicate why they're going to law school, right? And if, 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 you know, you were a captain of model UN and mock trial, and now you're a paralegal at a big firm and, you know, you're a political science major with a law minor, like it's all, it's clear you were on, you know, that you maybe were always focused on law school and why law might be more obvious. I think there can be an equally strong why law for STEM people or quant quanti people or for less tradi traditional, if that's such a thing, but they might need to be more explicit in a personal statement about what their reason is for going to law school. Just make sure your application as a whole tells us the answer to that question. If we read an application and we can't understand why you're going to law school, that's not good. Okay, what is something, this is Folu's question, Hello. Um, one, of so one of our volunteers. For those who are not in the room and listening at home when we've released this, it's one of our volunteers. volunteers exactly. So what is something that most law school applicants don't know or do that you wish they did? I know my answer. Write don't, more about buttered noodles. Write more about buttered noodles. Read the application instructions. Um, don't try to stand out. Like don't get fixated on standing out. I get asked it's like the most common question. Like, how do I stand out? How do I stand out? What makes an applicant stand out? Please don't try to stand out. Like what makes people stand out is like horrible, like mistakes, like writing about butter noodles. Okay. That's what we remember. It's not good. What you want to do is be the best version of yourself. You want to be authentic and solid. I use a horrible contorted sports metaphor. You want to hit single after single after single. Do not aim for a grand slam. That is what works. It just keep it basic, keep it tight. Don't have typos, read the instructions. That's what we like. Don't try to stand out. Don't be fancy. No images, no colors, nothing crazy. 
Suppose mine is less thematic. I, I co-sign that. Mine's a little less thematic. I really think applicants get um, overly fixated on the GPA and think of it less as an act, as we were describing kind of an academic record. Because um, academic records, it's, there's actually a lot of really rich information about you as a student and your interests and your trajectory and your path that we can find even just from your transcript, which is why we spend a lot of time on your transcripts. And I, I worry that too many applicants assume that it's just all about the number that LSAC generates for us Agreed, and 100%. not about kind of the richness of the transcript itself and your academic record itself. Cosine. Okay. What have you got? You're going to read the next Where? one? Should we do one more? Oh, let's do one more. Okay, so you do one this more. Was, do and this one is more. kind of another combo, and this is from Eunice and Aziz. Um, so Eunice asked, "Is there a Ooh, this is a good one? This is a good combo for students who have taken, um, in Eunice's words, a gap year or two to gain experience in the field, or is it equally compelling for a student to apply right after their undergraduate application?" And Aziz similarly asked. The same question in a different way. How much more difficult is it for undergraduates to apply to law school immediately after undergrad? Don't call it a gap year. You're adulting. It's real life. Once you graduate from it's not. Yes, it's the launch of your career. Yes, and it's your yeah, career. Those are important years. I'm sounding like an old lady. Those, those are important those years. Are important years. Those are important years, young ones. They're not gap years. Um, so that's number one. I like to frame it like this. We admit many, many wonderful people who are applying as seniors in college. They're fabulous. They're an important part of our classes. Um, the numbers on our website generally understate the, the number of people straight through because of deferrals. Um, good applicants get better over time. Um, they accumulate more experiences. They become more formed and more gelled um, in who they are and why they're going to law school. And so, comparing someone to themselves only, they will likely be a better applicant in two years than they were if they applied as a senior. That doesn't mean they won't get in as a senior. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the accumulation of those experiences will often make it them even stronger. So it, it's not really even comparing people to each other. I like to think about it as like a person on their trajectory. There's things you can do to get weaker. You can kind of do nothing or you can do something that's like, kind of bizarre, you know, I struggle to think what that is, but sometimes people do like things that just seem so off that you're like, Ooh, you know, where they really will take a whole year just to study for the LSAT. You don't want to look like you have a failure to launch. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I, I actually will say like just taking an enormous amount of time just to study and retake the LSAT over and over and over again to me, like diminishes the value of that LSAT score. Like I think lots of people, if they had the privilege of being able to do nothing but study and retake it over and over could get a higher score. And also it's just not great, not a great look. So like there's occasional things where people can weaken themselves over time, but that is such a minority. Almost everyone who's in contention is doing interesting, cool things, either working or a graduate degree or volunteer work or AmeriCorps, or Peace Corps, or just awesome, cool stuff. Or sometimes they're just making money and like supporting themselves and their family and getting professional skills. And that's awesome too. So that's my thought on that. I suppose I'll close by saying that, and this is a less of a law school admissions question and more of kind of a advice for you. Um, if you're in doubt, if you're not necessarily sure, or you're kind of on the fence, or even if there's some part of you that's wondering, well, maybe should, I should explore this other thing before I go to law school. If you're in, when in doubt, do it. Take a year, take two years, take five years, take, take however long you want to explore and to because law school will be waiting. Law school will be right there waiting for you. 
And that's can we do like two law school, two live questions? That's sure. Crazy. I, I can um, go around with can the we, mic. Can we do that, please? It'll you be call so on fun. People, I'll do We've the been mic. listening to ourselves talk for so long. It's so boring to listen to ourselves. Okay, raise hand. Oh, yay. <gasps> we have a hand. Can you say your name? And a fun Thank fact. Okay. The payment for the question is a fun fact. So, hi, my name is Maria Susana. I'm from Venezuela. That's my fun fact. That is a fun fact. Yes. And my question would be for... So I'm from a kind of like a less known undergrad and it's kind of like a different program. Like it just started here in Boston in the in 2018. So my question for you was um, when you come to a case like mine or like other people, international students that we come from less known schools, what is your advice for us to give you more context of like who we are, how our programs are different? Should we address that in an addendum? Should we ask like a recommender to go that for us? Like, what would you recommend for someone like me that is like in that limbo of like not knowing how to add it? So no addendum on that. Um, I would say the criteria for an addendum are like a significant external event that had a major negative impact on an important part of your application. So I, I don't think that that qualifies. Um, I think that, first of all, like we probably know more than you think, um, having read, you know, thousands of applications, thousands and thousands and thousands at this point. So fewer things are unknown than you might think, which is not to say that some things are not. Um, I think having a recommender talk about a program, if it's new and if it's like, let's say you're in, you know, it was a highly, I do remember when Minerva became yeah, a thing. So there's this university Minerva. called Minerva, which is like brand new. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. Very small, apparently very selective. So the first few years we were getting applicants, a tiny number from Minerva, the recommenders would talk about it. This is a new school. This is how we select people. It's incredibly selective in this way. And this is how our curriculum works. And I think that, that I found that very helpful. It was memorable to me um, to do it that way. NYU Abu Dhabi is another example where often because it's NYU, but it's like a different part of NYU and the way that they admit is a little bit different. They'll often include some information as well about their program and how they put together their classes. So I think that having the recommender do that is an awesome idea. Any other thoughts, Christy? I think that's also true for maybe if you're wondering if your major isn't necessarily as self-evident or if it's a program that's really, really unique. I think asking your recommender to share a bit more would be a great context. Thank you. Okay. Great question. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Sunkulp. Um, I just wanted to build on something that was said a moment ago about good um, good applicants getting better over time. And so in the context of reapplicants, um, I'd be curious about what each of your schools look for in terms of the movement um, of reapplicants, you know, years later when they apply again, that kind of thing. Thanks. That's a great question. Chris, do you want to take it? Want to take the reapplicant question? I think that um, in some ways, the what we're looking for for a reapplicant is exactly what we're looking for um, for an, someone who's applying for the very first time. My answer is actually a little bit different for transfer applicants, which is a different type of reapplicant. Um, but for someone who's reapplying for a 1L position, we're thinking about those same questions we talked about in the beginning. What are you going to be like as a student? What are you going to be like as a community member? Um, and I would say that I wouldn't worry too much if it's if some years have passed, most law schools will not go back and look at your previous application. There won't be an expectation necessarily that you address you know, what has changed in the years since you applied. Um, so I would try to take it as a whole new start. I'll just say there's nothing wrong with being a reapplicant at all. I think both of our schools admit many you know, every year admitting people who are reapplicants, the applicant pool is pretty different year to year. Um, and there's a lot of variability within the process when you're 
doing selective admissions. And so there are people that you come across and you're like, oh, I'm so excited to see this person again. I love them last year. It didn't quite work out. Like maybe this is the year. Um, so I, I think that taking that time to, to reapply, to be really thoughtful about every element of the application, where might you have done better? Um, did you love your personal statement? Maybe you were never so into it. Maybe there was one recommender you always had like a hinky feeling about and just making sure that you're really keeping what was great and then improving what could be improved is the way to do it. But lots of reapplicants are incredibly successful. It's like meeting an old friend when you see our reapplicants. Should we take one more from yeah. this side? Hi, my name is Minji. Um, can I tell a fun fact still three of times? Yes, I, I almost made you say one and then I <laughs> um, forgot. So I used to live in Alston last year and we had a rat infestation problem. Oh. So I wrote a 93A demand letter and managed to convince our landlord to give me one third of my rent back. That's my fun fact. Wow, <laughs> I love it. I, mean, um, I don't love the rats, but I love the yeah, yeah, I don't love the rats either. <laughs> Um, my question is, there have been rumors that the LSAT is changing their logic game section for next year. Um, it might turn into something else. Would that be taken into consideration for those who are applying with the new LSAT? That's not a rumor. I don't know too much about it, but I know that there was a lawsuit that was settled with, um, and I believe it was a law school applicant with a, a physical disability related to vision, like a vision disability um, related to logic games. I that's about all I know. And I know that in response to that, I don't know if they settled it or if there was some sort of court order. I don't actually know how that resolved, but there was a resolution to it. And one, the resolution was that there had to be a significant change to the logic game. Actually, as I was saying this aloud, I used to be on the LSAC subcommittee about assessments. And now I actually do know a lot of confidential information that I cannot share about what they're planning, um, which I will obviously not um, say more about. Um, <laughs> Are you As sure it's just us in the I'm room? sure it's just, yeah, we're just recording, right? No, this is, I do know that they are planning changes in response. And I think we were having a conversation before um, the event started about testing changes in general. I think there's not much we can do other than just say that we trust the psychometricians at um, ETS and LSAC, that the score is the score is the score. Uh, and, you know, they're the professionals. There's a lot of science behind this stuff. And so I know that there's an enormous amount of testing that's going into those changes and we will um, take the score as given to us and not penalize anyone. I think that's about right. Yeah. All right. Any final words, final word of wisdom final, before we sign off oh yes, and oh, enjoy the cheese? Do you expect words of wisdom from us, from me, from you? Anyone in the audience? Do you have anyone words in the audience of have words of wisdom? Okay, you go first with words of wisdom. Well, I think about being wise. <laughs> well, now, now I'm not sure if this is wise or not, but my advice to you as kind of a closing thought is, is to try as best you can to enjoy this process. Um, everyone's laughing for those who are listening to this recording later, everyone's Including chuckling. Um, because it is, this is such an exciting inflection point in your career. Um, and there's probably something really, really amazing that brought you to this room today to hear a little bit more. And that's going to bring you to law school. You probably have some really big goals for yourself and the big visions for the world. Um, so try to stay dialed into that and stay off Reddit. Yeah, please. <laughs> Um, yeah, final message from Big Pesticide is stay off Reddit. Uh, <laughs> I agree completely. I think it's important to realize that the admissions process is a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Um, there's not only one law school or two law schools or 10 law schools that can get you to be a lawyer. Um, your goal is to be a lawyer, um, 
whether it's to help people in a certain way, whether it's to, you know, go into big law and help support yourself and your family and do really complex transactional work, whatever it might be, like that's the goal. And so I would focus on that end goal as much as possible and try not to get wrapped up um, any more than you have to in sort of the, the steps that are ahead of you right now. I know it's very easy to get fixated on the first test score and then on where did I get admitted? And then on, you're only gonna go to one law school, you know? So if you get admitted to one law school that you're excited about, like that, you've done it. Uh, and so I think the more you can lift that pressure from yourself and try to enjoy this as much as possible, uh, the better it will be. Um, and just remember that there's lots of people like us who wanna be helpful, uh, who are on the other side of this. We're here because we, like law school, we like students, uh, we like applicants. And so, you know, ask for as much help as you need and people will be there to give it. And again, thank you all so much for being here. This was truly a joy and a pleasure.